right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. Got a really interesting episode coming up here with our good friend Peter Costas. I will say the content of this episode is very different from what I had in mind, uh, but we kind of got going off on a bunch of different tangents. I knew once I got Peter going, I could just ask a bunch of follow-up questions, kind of engage him in in, uh, some of the knowledge he was sharing, and it would be an interesting conversation. It turns into a bit of the modern evolution of golf or the evolution of modern golf, if you will. I kind of wanted to grill him on early 90s golf, and uh, the questions there really just kind of led to a whole different conversation than what I'm picturing. But I promise you're going to enjoy this one. He's got incredible insight. We went for quite some time a couple weeks ago when we did record this. So uh, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Whoop. You know Whoop. It is the fitness wearable you see us wearing in all of our videos. I am wearing it every day. I will confess to it currently being dead as we are filming Taurus Sauce Michigan. It is uh, not going to give me the data I want to see right now. Sometimes you just don't want to wake up and see a 20% recovery after playing 36 holes, having a few beverages. But that's what the Whoop does. It gives you personalized insight into how your daily activities treat your body, how your body reacts to it, what kind of sleep you're getting, how much your heart is resting at night, the heart rate variability you are incurring during the day which kind of is just all measures of how healthy your body is and how much strain you're ready to take on, how much sleep you need tonight, how much sleep you actually got, how many times were you disturbed through the night, all insights you get from your Whoop. So you can go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com. Use promo code NOLANGUP, all one word. That is 15% off uh, any of your purchases there. Again, whoop.com, promo code NOLANGUP, all one word for 15% off. Uh, thanks a ton to Peter Costas for the time and enjoy the episode. Cheers. So usually in this situation, we try to do a book report style, read up on everything we can, you know, try to teach the listeners something. But this is a, this is a different topic because I wanted to bring in someone that was a part of this era and can probably tell us more about it than anything I could find and scour up on the internet. Uh, that is Peter Costas. Peter, thank you for thank you for coming back. It's been about a year, I think. Uh, just about, I think. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Exactly, exactly. The impetus for this podcast or a question, a big question I want to have answered, and I... I you and I have talked a lot about TV stuff, uh, both pu- publicly and privately. And, you know, I f- sometimes find myself just wondering how golf got here with the commercial load and things like that. And it just kind of dawned on me. I, I asked that myself that question, like, when did we get here? And I just kind of said, wait, was it always like this? Like, I, I, maybe I just don't remember it as a kid, you know, being the way that it is. And that's what I wanted to ask you is... When do you, when did golf change or did it change? Has it always been this heavily commercialized product that we see today? No, when I started uh, my first foray into television was the 89 Ryder Cup at the Belfry, which USA Network put on. Then I started in 90 with USA full-time and CBS part-time. And then throughout the, well, from 91 on with CBS for almost 30 years, Remember that Frank Shukinian, who I affectionately called the the godfather of televised golf, he was a producer director. He did both jobs back in the day. What what are the two jobs? Can you can you explain what the difference is there or why they're different now? The director is the guy that conducts the symphony of cameramen uh, to produce shots. 
he'll tell the cameraman, you know, get a close up or do this or do that or whatever. And the, and the producer decides which of those shots get on the air and win. In today's day and age, it is absolutely, completely impossible for one person to do both of those jobs because the telecast has gotten much more cluttered and, and much more complicated, right? Back in the day, Frank would produce and direct the shows. And a lot of people don't realize this, and there's no reason for them to because this is kind of inside information, but Frank had carte blanche at CBS because CBS Golf in the early 90s, late 80s, was a substantial chunk of the net profits of the CBS network. There were certain times when golf was almost 20, 25% of the net profits of of the CBS television network. Could you compare that to what that might look like today, just for the listeners? I think they're breaking even, maybe. I mean, I I have no access to the books, but I will say this. When you look at the evolution, there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. This this could end up being a three-hour podcast. <laughs> but when Frank started, you know, Dean Beeman was the original commissioner of the PGA Tour in these times. Then he he left and Tim Fincham took over and then Fincham left and Monaghan now. So you've gone from a, a golfer, a professional golfer, to a, a lawyer lobbyist in Fincham to a marketer in Monaghan, right? Mm-hmm. And during this evolution, along comes a, a young kid named Tiger Woods. And I mean, he was electric, uh, still is for that matter. But Fincham saw the golden goose in Tiger, and he thought he could turn golf into a major sport rather than the niche sport that it always has been and probably always will be. And so Tiger comes along, Fincham ups the purses, ups the rights fees dramatically. I mean, the rights fees from the early 90s to now, I, I don't know if they, they've more than quadrupled, whatever. I, I don't know the numbers exactly, but they've gone up astronomically. So obviously, if you have to pay more for a product, you have to figure out how to pay for that product. And that leads to all kinds of commercial interruptions, sponsored segments within the telecast. Luckily for me, that included the, the Konica Minolta at the time, swing, BizHub Swing Vision camera, which I loved, but it was still a sponsored segment, right? And so the 90s gave birth to the commercialization of golf, in, in my opinion. That, that really was when Tiger came along in 1997, 96, 97, that changed everything. And it became more about money and less about pure golf. So you're saying it coincides with Tiger coming along in 96, more than Fincham starting, I believe, January 1 of twenty of 1994? Yes. I mean, the product was what the product was when, when Fincham came along. I mean, there were some, obviously, the great players uh, back then. I mean, you had Faldo and Kite and Nick Price and Greg Norman, amongst others. Nicholas was still around but headed toward the senior tour at the time things dramatically changed when tiger came along nike commercialized him nike tried to turn him into the new michael jordan uh for their product line and and the birth of commercialization of professional golf was born 
Take us back to pre-Tiger. What did golf on television look like? How many hours was it on? What were, you know, I think we, we've documented and, and it's been evidence to us that it's about 18 minutes of commercials per hour now. Compare that to what it was like back then. Was it, was it normal for a PGA Tour event to be on Thursday, Friday? Was it only weekends? What did the commercial load look like? Can you compare it to what it is today? Well, USA Network had the rights to carry early round coverage, or they attained the rights, well, with the Masters, actually, and CBS. And there was there was nothing in the 80s, as I remember, early 80s especially, on Thursday and Friday. It was just weekend coverage and a couple hours each day. Then the Masters expanded. USA Network came along with CBS, signed a contract to be their provider uh, for, for Thursday, Friday. And it actually wasn't even Thursday, Friday. Initially, it was just an hour or two on Friday afternoon. And back in the day, we would have to go in for rehearsal. Frank would make us go to our towers or wherever we were, and we would rehearse for an hour or an hour and a half on Fridays. So for us, being able to go on the, the air with USA Network made it a little bit more paddle, palatable than just sitting there and talking to nobody just to get some reps in, right? So it didn't it didn't affect us in terms we still had to be there by Thursday. We we worked a little bit on Friday and then Saturday, Sunday was the big deal. Eventually that morphed into uh, a couple hours, Thursdays and Fridays for most weekends. And then in 96, yeah, 96, 95, 96, the golf channel came along. And so they're now looking for obviously live golf to put on the air and boom. Here we are. You got golf 24 7, 365. Would Golf Channel have survived if they didn't miraculously coincide with Tiger? <laughs> you see what I mean? Getting that head start? In both good ways and bad ways, I think obviously mostly good. Tiger coming along and what he provided to the golf world and to the sports world in general was phenomenal for golf. And without it, no, I don't see the Golf Channel surviving whatsoever. It wasn't going to happen. He created the excitement. Uh, he got the the late Friday afternoon tea times so that Golf Channel could put him on the air when he did play. Obviously, purses skyrocketed, rights fees skyrocketed, and coverage of golf was never going to be the same. Because I've got 1996 total uh, purses on the PGA Tour. Total purse was $66 million. And by 2000, uh, by 2000 four years later, Hundred and sixty three point six million dollars. And there you then two thousand seven, just seven years after that, two hundred and seventy point three million. It it is just insane what happened. And we often refer to the tiger tax and that all the, the anybody that has played golf post nineteen ninety seven should have to tithe some money towards Tiger for how much money he's made everyone. Was there any other like confluence of events in just I mean, uh, salaries have risen a lot in baseball, in football, in basketball, in a lot of other sports. You know, Tiger gets a lot of credit for this, deservedly, but were there other factors as well, you know, in just how sports were presented on TV and how, you know, that, that really caused this boom? I know Tiger, like I said, he deserves a lot of the credit, but there had to be some other factors in there as well, right? Well, I mean, television coverage in general across all sports improved tremendously because technology improved uh, in the 90s, right? Everything changed. It's impossible to look at this from any other than a kind of a mosaic point of view. You watch baseball players in the 80s and the camera would, 
inadvertently pick up somebody in the dugout smoking a cigarette, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. there's pictures of Roger Maris after hitting three home runs, and he's and he's he's smoking a cigarette in the dugout between innings. And diet and working out was non-existent. And you, you look at the evolution of all the sports. Obviously, Tiger brought it to golf, but it was starting to change across the board. And uh, you know, we went from golfers going to the golf course, hitting some balls, going to play a practice round, going to play a tournament round, going home, getting changed, going out for dinner and drinks. Now you've got a dietitian, you've got a, a trainer, you've got a coach, you've got almost a 24-hour approach to preparing for your next five hours of, of golf. It's changed. The, the entertainment value has, I think, been diminished. It's it's much less fun, much less spontaneity, much more scheduled, and and much more business like now. Optimized is the word I keep coming to, right? And and it, it's trending that way. It's like that in a lot of sports, right? Baseball analytics, basketball analytics have just optimized. I I got to tell you that although it's not in the '90s, the analytics that have come along, you know, you you can make a case that Billy Bean with Moneyball what was the beginning of it, but now with Shotlink that. Donna Orender started at the PGA Tour, I get incredibly bored watching a baseball game and having announcers talk about launch angles and hmm. exit velocity and, and whatever. You know, that, that, that doesn't add to my enjoyment of watching a baseball game. And to a large extent, I'm not sure that, that statistics in golf, uh, I, I think it's a lazy way to approach announcing just spew up some stats and then use the stats to form an opinion rather than going out talking with players and getting some insight as to why they're doing X, Y, or Z. I think stats and, and green reading books and all that stuff has led to a certain degree of laziness in terms of the professional game of golf. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Pinehurst. Now is the time to book your fall Pinehurst visit at pinehurst.com. Of course, we have the 2024 U.S. Open coming to the number two course, the famed Donald Ross course, his masterpiece, newly renovated number four course by Gil Hance. There's the Tom Fazio number eight course. There's the Gil Hance and Jim Wagner creation, the cradle, 789 yards. Some of the most fun golf you'll ever play anywhere. There's the Thistledew putting green, which is free right there. Roll right inside of the deuce for wings and beers and whatever you can possibly imagine. Uh, it's just an incredible place. I cannot wait. We're going to be there in October. It is marked on the calendar. And uh, it's it's called the St. Andrews of American golf for a lot of reasons. It's you know, there's so much great golf in the area. There's the newly renovated Manor Inn. They got the Pinehurst Brewing Company for a little place, you know, to kind of escape Pinehurst at night and into a place with a little bit of nightlife. So again, go to Pinehurst.com, book your fall visit, your next year's spring visit, or you find something for this summer. There's a lot of opportunities available at Pinehurst. Uh, we thank them for their partnership of this podcast. Without any further delay, let's get back to Peter Costas. I forget if I ever brought this topic up to you, and, and uh, this is maybe trending more on TV side than the original uh, pre-Tiger 90s topic that I, that I proposed to you. But you, know, you see on the other sports like NFL, like the broadcasters and stuff sit down with the quarterbacks that week you know, to talk about what they're up to and stuff. And I always wonder why, when it comes to golf, why are there not little segments filmed with players to say, like, all right, we're going to show you a, like a flyover of this 14th hole 
tell me everything you've learned about this hole this week and how you're going to play it. And then when that player gets to that hole on Saturday or Sunday, you may have this these clips to say, like, instead of just doing a, a basic flyover of it, here is this person's strategy and all the things he's going to think about while playing this hole. Something like that, I feel like it would be so engaging, and I, I don't see any innovation on that front. I'm sure there's a million reasons why it can't happen. That's why I want to ask you why it can't. <laughs> there's one reason why it doesn't happen. It's, mo- it's money. It's time. And time is money. You know, I mean, uh, you now are a converted Formula One fan, right? Yes, yes. The Drive to Survive series was instrumental in that, right? Yep. And in football, you've got, uh, what's it called? Hard Knocks. Hard Knocks, correct. Sorry. You could do that in in golf. You could do that with the Corn Ferry Tour. You could could have a series, you know, highlighting the, the trials and tribulations of these kids that are on the Corn Ferry Tour trying to make it to the PGA Tour. It's it, that would be mesmerizing and well done. It, it would get people to become fans of these players as they get on the PGA Tour. Right now, they get on the PGA Tour. Nobody knows who the hell they are. Yeah. But all of this costs money. And you're right. NASCAR drivers get interviewed 30 seconds before they run out onto the track to to drive a car 200 miles an hour around an oval. Golfers, if you approach them in the parking lot two and a half hours before their round of golf, are completely against being interviewed because they don't want to have the wrong question asked that upsets their mindset. Mm-hmm. I go, really? You know, you're, you're part of the product. You, you are the product. As such, if I'm going to pay all this money for the right to put you guys on TV, then you have to give me something back in return in the name of interviews or, or this or that. I think some of that stuff is interfering with the telecast, but you could do some things pre-round that might be enhancing of the telecast. Amen. That's I mean, I it. think cu- cutting yeah. away to an interview when the leaders are on the 16th hole to me is stupid. Yeah, I, I don't want to hear from somebody who just finished what it was like. We saw them, right? I, I want to stay with the leaders and maybe get some insight pre-round as to what they would do if they were in this situation, ultimately on the 16th, 17th, 18th hole. Amen. And that I just never understood why those interviews need to be live. You know, tape them, and if something really interesting happens, play it when you have a chance. But they... <laughs> I just don't don't understand why those have to be live. And I think to your point, I, I don't I don't want you know European Tour has done interviews with players on the course while they're walking from tee to green. I'm, I'm I don't need that. I don't think you're going to get much of it. You know, unless unless the questions are very pointed. You know, like it, it just feels like oh, one shot at a time kind of stuff. It doesn't really provide that much insight. But kind of some strategy it, it provides, stuff. Yeah, go ahead. It provides zero insight, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the first time you ask a pointed question will be the last time you ask that player that pointed question. Yeah. Because you'll get blackballed, right? I, I know from experience with Tiger. Right. It, what, what, what's your experience there with Tiger? Remind the, the Tiger wouldn't the talk to me for a year and a half. And his agent, Mark Steinberg, asked the powers to be at CBS not to have me assigned to his group. What was it you said or asked? I, I was just talking about his golf swing. And yeah. if my producer you know, says, all right, Costas, swing vision, Tiger, and he's just hit it 20 yards in the woods. I'm supposed to tell the people at home why I thought what happened and why it went 20 yards in the woods. What am I going to say? It was a really a great swing and he just aimed it there. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he got he got upset that I, he thought I was being too critical. Now, after a while, we talked and, and you know, kind of figuratively kissed and made up. 
golfers, professional golfers are a fragile breed mentally. And they are not, they're not liking being interviewed during the process or, or even slightly before the process. So it doesn't add much to the viewer. But as I've told you before, Solly, nobody gives a, a, a hoot about, I'm not going to use the term I used last time, about the, the viewer's experience, you know? rat's ass we could say it it's it's yeah, immortalized okay, in podcast history <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it a lot of what you're saying though it just feels like there's no buy-in from the players on this whole concept of we are here to entertain viewers like the whole reason we make a lot of money is built on inter- entertaining both people in person and on television right it's it, it is very stuck between, and I get like a lot of the things that they believe will help them play better golf, which helps them, you know, earn more money. But if I'm looking at Formula One, it it is everyone just kind of seems in on this whole thing of like we got to need to create some drama here together, right? I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna be honest because we're gonna sit up on podiums together and talk about this because like that's interesting, and I'm gonna say something critical about you, and you're gonna be sitting two seats away from me. And we're going to get your reaction to that. And like that, that kind of buy-in just doesn't really exist in pro golf. And, it, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring you on as well is like, it, was there a change in that when the money got big? Has it always been like that? Is, and, and, and maybe we can work our way back into kind of figuring out this decade again, but that, that I just don't, I don't see it changing. And I just didn't know what the history of that was like. Well, I, it's, it's an evolutionary process. And I, I do want to talk about you know, the evolution of the golf swing, evolution of equipment and golf courses, et cetera, et cetera, during that time period, because I think it was instrumental into what we have right now. But back in the day, if a mishit shot cost you whatever, a thousand dollars in your payout at the end of the week, all right, thousand dollars is a lot of money, but it's not a hundred thousand dollars, right? Right. When you start playing for thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a stroke the players became a lot more protective of their time and, and energy and the amount of money they could make in a year. Yep. Trust me, they are not playing for points. They're playing for dollars. <laughs> points are dollars. That's the thing that, you know, they always try to make everything about the points, but it really, the points are worth nothing unless you, they're like poker chips. You change them in for cash at the end of the night. You do that at the end of the year. You change them in for cash. <laughs> yeah, but each chip has a dollar value on it. The points don't. But don't get me started on that. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole different issue. So you touched on you know wanting to talk about equipment, golf swing, stuff like that. So I'll ask this question, and I'm I'm curious. This is a hypothetical. If TrackMan existed in 1995, you know what what TrackMan spits out today with today's equipment is very different than what it would have spit out in 1995. What would that information availability have done to golf swings how would golf swings be different how how would the how would that have changed the game when we're not in this post you know pro v1 equipment boom do you see what i'm getting at yeah i I do but i i don't think i don't think the golf swing would have changed just because of TrackMan or launch monitors some individual players may have changed certain things in their swings but and listen this is something i've studied for 50 years the evolution of the golf swing throughout time and until around 19 90, 95, it evolved because of changes in golf course design and golf course condition that the players faced and equipment changes. Now, under equipment, you can go all the way back to the 1800s where guys played in in boots and tweed suits 
and had to bend their left arm. They had no range of motion because their clothing was so restrictive to hickory shafts, to steel shafts, to graphite shafts, you know, to featheries, to gutta percha, to balata, to Pro V1. All of these things interacted, right? Everybody's golf swing evolved basically because golf course design back in the day, we just saw it at, uh, at Royal St. George's, you play a lot on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Not so much up in the air because of the wind and, and so on and so forth. Then then along comes architecture changes where Trent Jones and others put bunkers in, in front of greens. And now you had to start putting the ball up in the air. And so along comes Jack Nicklaus. I mean, up until then, most players had a low trajectory, low launch, uh, high spin trajectory to, to keep the ball down out of the wind and so on and so forth. We had the, the 1.62 ball in the rest of the world and the 1.68 ball in America. You can go back and say part of the reason why Europeans and and worldwide golfers have caught up to American golfers in terms of production as a player is because they got rid of that small ball and they are all forced to play the big ball and they had to change their golf swings accordingly. That's really where the evolution of the golf swing took place. Equipment changes, golf course condition and golf course design changes. And then along comes Tiger. I go. I circle back to the beginning. Now there were some guys back in the day, like Frank Strafacci, who is the grandfather of our current U.S. Amateur champion, right? And and he would carry weights around, and he was one of the first ones to actually lift weights and play golf. Uh, Mike Austin was another guy, big, big, long hitter, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't mainstream until Tiger came along. And people started seeing what Tiger could do with a golf club and a golf ball and his workout ethic. And all of a sudden, fitness became – it came to the forefront in preparation for a golf tournament. And so now the golf swing changed again because fitness changed the body. So you, you can say that your body is part of your equipment, I, I suppose. But but fitness and, and strengthening and and – becoming more flexible and better aerobic conditioning to keep your heart rate down and all of those things tiger brought along and and um as a consequence you know guys were going to the gym at six o'clock at night rather than going to the bar and that's where the evolution of the golf swing has taken place and is now set up for what we we have in the in the 2020s virtually everybody works out everybody's got custom-made equipment now they got launch monitors to to maximize that equipment and make sure it's fit correctly for them and it's becoming more science and less art is there is there more room for science in golf like how much more optimized and how much further can can things get it it, you know whenever you're in the current it always feels like you're up against the cutting edge of technology and that it can't get much better or much deeper but do you see it i mean i don't see it stopping but how much further can things get I don't know that they can get much further along. I, I do really think that we're up against the edge, except for the fact that now what's happening, and, and this is this is one of the uh, untold secrets about the evolution of our current equipment in terms of golf clubs in the early 90s, 80s. I mean, it was rare when you saw a Nick Faldo, who is six foot four, come along and, and play and play well. Greg Norman was, I don't know what he was, six one, six feet. Most of the players were six feet or less. Now, 
you're hard pressed to find anybody that's not six feet or over. And last week in the open, we had a we had a a, a guy six foot nine, right? So the equipment is so much lighter, so much stronger that bigger people can be fit correctly to be able to play golf properly. Back in the day, you had George Archer, right? Six foot five. But the clubs, the steel shafts were so heavy, you couldn't make them too long because they were unwieldy and you, you couldn't control them. So he had a scrunch six foot five down into five foot nine. And as a consequence, he tore up his body. I don't know how many surgeries he had over the course of his career, but it had to be in double numbers for sure. Now you got guys six four, six five, six seven, setting up to a guy to a golf ball and looking just like a guy that's five ten. So that's where I, I think bigger, stronger, faster is going to come from the athletes who are playing golf now because the equipment allows for that. So if you got bigger, stronger, faster players playing your sport, you can't blame the golf ball for it going farther. You know, you got a you got an engine with with a thousand horsepower instead of an engine with three hundred and fifty horsepower. Car's going to go faster with a thousand horsepower, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's where the little bit of the confusion lies. Or, or it's always been a great advantage in golf to hit the ball further than the next guy, right? It's always been that that's not new, right? It's just I would say when things changed into the two thousands, when the driver heads kept growing, kept growing, and I, I don't have the timeline specific on that. I mean, when, when we're in nineteen ninety five, we're not talking about four hundred sixty cc drivers, right? When the golf ball started spinning less and the driver heads got bigger, it made way more sense to be bigger, faster, stronger because the punishments were just not as strong for off-center and off-line hits uh, when creating more speed as they would have been, say, in the mid-90s. So why I think a big reason why we're seeing way, everything trending towards the speed, 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 speed thing is that the punishment just it, the risk isn't that big to swing really hard and fast at a club head that is that big. Bryson referenced it last week as we're recording this last week at the Open, saying, uh, you know, the, the miss hits are not flying right right, right now. It's like, whoa, like these guys are planning for miss hits to be to be very accurate shots, and that it, that that I think is contributing so heavily towards wh- where things are trending. And I just, I wonder if that, it, one, if you agree with that assessment, and two, if there's any way to put that toothpaste back in the tube. I kind of agree with that assessment. I mean, we've known for quite some time that the ball doesn't curve quite as much on miss hits. They're blaming the ball for that. But in reality, I think it's the club head yeah. that's not making it curve so much. I mean, I see plenty of 15 handicappers who come for lessons who can really curve that golf ball <laughs> to where they can't even find it, right? I don't blame the golf ball for that. That said, it's going to be difficult to put the toothpaste back in the tube. But remember, I said the evolution of the golf swing occurred because of golf course design and golf course condition, correct? Now you've added in, you've got Mark Brody and strokes gained. And now everybody has arbitrarily bought into this concept that the farther you can hit it and the closer you can get it to the green, the better you're going to score. Well, that's true given the design and the condition of some of these golf courses that the tour is playing right now. But you go over to Royal St. George's and you saw where where Bryson hit it a couple times and you couldn't even get it out of it. He's complaining that he couldn't get the ball to stop on the green. Well, he was hitting it out of two feet of hay. If the golf course condition was such that, example, don't 
graduate the rough from the edge of the fairway outward. I mean, you can, but graduate the rough from the tee to the green so that the closer you get to the green and the shorter the iron you're going to be using, the more penal the rough needs to be. You can't have three inches of rough from tee to green and have it be fair for everybody, right? The guy who hits it farther is going to have a huge advantage, so he's going to continue to hit it farther. But if you know hitting it farther offline, farther and offline is going to be punitive, then you're going to rein back your swing. and You don't have to worry about whether or not the technology can be put back in the toothpaste tube. Part of this whole explosion and power and whatnot has been lazy architecture, lousy golf course conditioning, and the fact that the tour doesn't necessarily go to the best, most difficult golf courses in each venue because they're, they're so worried about infrastructure and a lot of other stuff that they take the, the best course available. They don't want to see guys embarrassed week in and week out. So the condition of the golf course, and plus they don't want it to take six hours. So the condition of the golf course is not as as difficult as say a Royal St. George's was. Yeah. That's, that's, if anything, you know, to take away from this first 30 minutes or so is, is how intertwined all of this is. Right. So as soon as you say, you know, the, the, golf course conditioning and all that well you're limited when it comes to golf course that you can choose from when the footprint and the infrastructure footprint of the tour is so big that's something that i'm still kind of gaining appreciation for like parking off-site you know trucks you need for all the food that comes in all the television crew all of the the hospitality needed for the television crew and the other media and all of this stuff is it's not a a non-factor and it does eliminate a ton of golf courses and then you have to find the golf courses whose memberships want to give up the golf course for a while. Now we're on you know, step five of figuring this out. And architecture is way down this list. Uh, and, and course conditioning is way down this list because you want uniform-ish conditioning week to week because that's what's written in the PGA Tour Player Handbook. And it's just not as simple as and, and I, do I wish every golf course played like Royal St. George's? Of course. like That is the most interesting style of golf to watch. That's just not realistic in, in the Midwest in the middle of the summer or even a lot of the coastal places in the U.S. And so then you end up with, you know, how do we challenge players? Well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sink the bunkers. We're going to narrow the fairways, how, you know, and then it becomes this game of hitting it high, long, and and a golf ball that doesn't spin that much. Is that am I, is, is that a good summary, of a two-minute summary of how we end up with what, what it looks like today? Yeah, everybody's looking for a silver bullet to solve this problem, right? But it, but it isn't a silver bullet. This is death by a thousand cuts. Yep. And it's all of these little nicks with the knife that that are causing us to bleed out. You have to realize that going in. You know, I mean, you can make you can make golf courses difficult. I mean, Colonial Country Club is uh, an example of a golf course that I think plays. Fairly well, considering it's an old golf course. Uh, you know, it's barely seven thousand yards. Same with Hilton Head, but the infrastructure surrounding those golf courses is insufficient. I mean, the TV trucks are on a street outside the golf course. Everything's jam packed in there because not because the golf course can't handle the tournament, but because the golf course property can't handle the infrastructure around the tournament. And why? Because you're charging sponsors a lot of money, so they got to bring in a lot of people. You got to have bleachers and you got to have hospitality and you got to have, you got to have, you got to have. And so this has now become 
you know, a Barnum and Bailey circus that picks up and goes from week to week, and it requires a fairly large footprint, certainly way larger footprint for infrastructure than you need for the golf course. Yeah, and there's not a lot of courses that were built in the 20s and 30s that, you know, just have tons of land sitting around it that hasn't been developed over the years or, you know, hasn't been needed to expand the golf course to make it a tour course at this point. And it's complicated. It really is. And that's where I, I, I don't want to say I've, I'm losing hope, uh, but I, I don't see things trending a reversing trend in a uh, entertaining way, especially with rights fees going up. But with what you're saying with you know, it, golf used, used to be very profitable for CBS to now it maybe being break even with rights fees going up almost 100% into the next year. It certainly does not make uh, me, me make me encourage that we're going to see less commercialization in golf going forward. No, I mean, the only the only way you're going to get less commercialization in golf going forward is uh, for people to buy a package. Uh, they're going to have to be willing to pay pick a number 10, 10 bucks a week to watch a CBS telecast that doesn't have commercials. Pay-per-view doesn't exactly grow the game either. <laughs> so it's not just about the golf anymore. And it hasn't been for quite some time. So going back to the mid nineties, as we're talking about this, I feel like I'm watching now very, very souped up ad vehicles, right? Uh, into, in 2021 when watching professional golf, if you're at a tournament in 1995, did it feel a lot more like you're watching a golf tournament? Does that question make sense? Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it did. And I'll, I'll go back to the Masters, right? In 95, 96. 96 was the, the famous Masters tournament that, that uh, Faldo beat Norman. And back in the early 90s, oh, the Masters was obviously one of the top two, top three tournaments in the world. People can put it one, two, or three according to their own biases, but... We would go in. CBS announcers, the, especially the, those who are professionals, were invited in to play their golf course on Sunday so we get a feel for it. It was low-key. We would play. We would go putt our greens. We would do all kinds of things. We felt like we were a part of the tournament. And when we went on the air on Saturday, we had pretty good insight as to what may or may not happen that day. Now, you're not allowed anywhere near the golf course. And that, that Sunday is now drive, chip, and putt. And the women's amateur tournament ends on, on Saturday. And it's a much bigger, much more commercialized venture. You look at what the amateur, the Masters was in the 80s and 90s. It was an exclusive event, an elite event that focused on 70, 80, maybe 90 players. Now you've got the Latin America amateur to qualify. you got the Pacific, Asia Pacific amateur to qualify. You've got all kinds of stuff. You look at the commercialization of the masters, and that's that's a pretty good insight into the commercialization of golf. I mean, they, they went and bought half of downtown Augusta for infrastructure, for parking. Spent $25 million on a driving range. It used to be a parking lot. So it's completely changed now, and the masters, make no mistake about it, is a business. That's a pretty good snapshot of what's happened in the golf world worldwide it was it, it, but it's one of the few places though that that business commercialization has not the, the viewer has not had to pay the price for that you know what i mean they are still so adamant about and a tremendous viewership experience those parking lots are free the concessions prices are quite low and i go back to uh the david owen book uh, the famous book the making of the masters 
And reading about the television negotiations between CBS and Augusta National in the 1950s about the back and forth that went with like the long-term vision of Clifford Roberts of not hitting people, even back to the 50s, of over-commercialization of the product would not help the long-term health of the event. And cutting edge of technology and expand, like being a leader in how the product was presented is, I believe, what contributed so greatly to the Masters just having an incredible boom whatever era you would define that as as having a boom but they have a leg up on on every PGA every golf event in the world i think not in small part due to their approach to how the tournament was presented from a media standpoint right like they let media like you said that you got to play the golf course before the tournament they always let media now play the monday after the tournament you know they were bringing in writers back in the 30s i believe on trains and grantland rice was brought into the tournament to cover it to get the word out on it and they had this enormous press building now with that is the nicest of any press building in golf and it it's a circular thing right they have all this money now because the business has gotten so big but their vision has always felt so long-term to me, and everything I watch on the PGA Tour feels extremely short-term. I'm curious to get your reaction to any of that. Well, it goes back to what I said about uh, Steve Jobs and and uh, the lost interview and understanding that you have to keep improving your product. And, And I will say, yes, the Masters has done an exceptionally good job with their layout of how they make money and spend money. And back in the day, and I don't know if this is true or not now, so I can't say that this is where it is now, but CBS would go down, have a meeting with the, the folks at Augusta, and they would they would propose a production cost, what it would cost CBS to put on the tournament. And I assume there was some haggling here and there, whatever, but they would come up with a figure, whatever it was. And that's what Augusta National would pay CBS. And the four sponsors that they had for the one minute per hour for each sponsor, they would take whatever that figure was, divide it by four, and that's what they would pay as a sponsor. And that was it. Uh, so the rights fees, as we say, were pretty low. You, you, you never made a profit. CBS never made a profit at the Masters, but obviously the Masters was a very profitable commodity to have in the CBS portfolio, right? So uh, it gets back to if the Masters had charged CBS $100 million for the right to put on the tournament, it wouldn't be four hours, uh, four minutes of, of commercials per hour. I can assure you that. It gets back to the rights fees that the networks are forced to pay in order to put on the PGA Tour product. And I, you know, the, the PGA Tour is one giant advertising vehicle. They don't care about the quality of the viewer experience. The Masters makes their money. CBS puts on the production. Now they have a world feed there as well. And but then they charge television rights for Japan, for Australia, for Argentina, for wherever. All these countries pay a rights fee to show the Masters, and then that adds up. They make a ton of money, obviously. Ticket sales are are not exorbitant price-wise. Obviously, as you said, food and beverage is, is minimalist, very cheap by today's standards for a major sporting event. So yeah, the Masters expanded like golf has expanded, but they did it correctly. They kept the patron and the viewer and their experience 
in mind when they decided they were going to do this and not do that. I feel like a sucker sometimes watching uh, tour golf, you know, a, a whole three, four hour window. And I never feel like my time spent watching the masters that do I feel like the mark or the sucker, you know, somebody trying to sell me something. It's, it's a golf tournament first. And I know it's a huge, huge, huge business, but like I said, I just, it, it's different when the, when the viewer doesn't have to pay the price. There's a reason why it's so many people's favorite event to watch, right? It has, of course, there's a million factors that contribute. The golf course is amazing. It's, you know, the one of the most historic places in golf. It's one of the oldest golf tournaments now. And, uh, I, I, I just think that that, that parallel, I guess, you know, if we're talking about pre tiger era to now, how has, how have the majors changed in general? What majors have changed the most or what's something maybe we don't have appreciation for, uh, evolution wise in major championships from pre tiger to now? Well, I think the, the biggest thing that's changed with the majors is that they've had to step up with their purses. And again, let's, I'm going to take one step back again and understand that there are a lot of people who enjoy watching the European tour on television, fewer commercials, a less cluttered telecast. You could say that the European tour is the PGA tour of 1990, hmm. uh, both in purses and in uncluttered viewing. So people like it, but they don't realize that the reason they like it is because the players are playing for way less money. The TV rights fees are much less expensive than the PGA Tour rights fees. And so they're allowed to be able to put on a, a telecast like that. In terms of the majors, look, golf has always been uh, late to the party with societal changes, you know, whether it's admitting blacks to the to the PGA Tour or the PGA of America uh, or women members at certain golf clubs. Golf has always been late to the party and racing to catch up in social areas. And the U.S. Open was viewed as a elitist blue blood Northeast country club tournament championship. And so they, they went through and now they try to democratize the U.S. Open. So they started going to public golf courses like Aaron Hills and Torrey Pines and whatever. They wanted to show the world that they really were interested in the, the small guy, not just the big fat cat. Now they're going away from that a little bit, going back to some more traditional uh, golf courses in the, in, the, in the coming years. The PGA of America has gotten bigger, for sure. They were at the forefront. You can like the golf course. You can not like the golf course. But... By going to Louisville, Kentucky, virtually every PGA championship that they've had there has been a captivating competition. You know, you can say the golf course is what it is, but it's produced great tournaments, whether it was Tiger Woods and Bob May or uh, Rory McIlroy finishing in the dark. It's always been exciting. So they, they started trying to kind of emulate the Masters in the sense that we're going to have it on our own golf course for X number of times per decade. Is major championships and how they compare to regular PGA Tour events in terms of importance, how has that evolved over the last 30 years or so? Because as I see it, there's a lot more big PGA Tour events, purses. Uh, there's a lot, you know, the elevated events. We have WGCs. It feels like we have so many more weeks per year that are trying really hard to tell you these are very important weeks in golf. 
when maybe in the 90s we had four that were very clearly the biggest weeks. I'm wondering if you could kind of compare how, how, the, how that comparison has, uh, has evolved over the years. Well, I mean, again, it go, it, I hate to beat a dead horse better, <laughs> but here I go. I mean, what, what are the five biggest events in professional golf, in your opinion? Say the Open, U.S. Open, PGA Championship, the Masters, and the Ryder Cup. And how many of those does the PGA Tour own? Zero. Okay. So in an attempt to compete with the big five, they started with the Players' Championship. And then they added in the, the World Golf Championship events. And they're trying to create their own majors, as it were. But I think enough time has gone by now to know that, especially the World Golf Championship events, have, have really taken a backseat to what they were originally envisioned to be. I mean, the Players' Championship is, is a good championship. I think that golf course has undergone more facelifts than Phyllis Diller or, or whatever, but it's a good golf course. It's a good test of golf. And if I may interject, they have done a tremendous job passing along the benefits and the greatness of that golf tournament onto both people in attendance and the viewer. They have bigger television windows. They have less commercial interruption. They have more online viewing. The amphitheaters around the tee boxes and greens are designed for tournament golf. Concession prices are, are still the same as what they would be at a normal PGA Tour event if we're comparing to the Masters. But I feel that both watching that tournament and watching it in person that I feel like it's a big, big golf tournament. It's a, a golf course that identifies a specific champion and it's not too bomb and gougy and I walk away with good vibes after the players now it's a little forced down our throats a little bit but it is the their one event that they treat differently than the other ones and that's not that doesn't go unnoticed no and and, and like I said before the evolution of the golf swing and and the the controlling of bomb and gouge focuses around equipment golf course design and golf course condition and the design of that golf course is in my opinion, excellent in terms of allowing every single one of the 156 players that show up there to be able to take their style of play and compete to win. There's a mix of short, straight hitters, big, strong players. You know, Tiger hasn't dominated that tournament over the years. So golf course design is integral to how the what style of play the players use to try and win the championship. I think that works really well when you have a golf course designed for this championship at the headquarters of the PGA Tour, but that's not that's just not something that or is this a is that's the future of golf that we have 40 plus designed stadiums for for, for PGA Tour golf around the country and that's that's you know that are this well designed to test the professionals or are we going to keep going to places where, you know, pro golf pops in for one week and the other 51 weeks of the year, it's either members or public that, that play it. And that's really what it's designed for. Well, I think, I think it's going to be a combination. I think we're leaning more towards that. I said, I said years ago and got raked over the coals for it, that rather than the USGA going in and bastardizing golf courses by, by taking a 45 yard wide fairway cutting it down to 24 yards and therefore having the fairway bunkers be 20 yards in the rough, they decide how they want to examine the player's abilities, build a golf course that examines according to their standards and, and hold the tournament there. 
you know, have have a U.S. Open golf course uh, in California, have a U.S. Open golf course in wherever Pinehurst, and and have an East Coast West Coast alternate, and you you could build four golf courses at each venue, hold the U.S. Amateurs there, the Women's Open, everything, and then make it op- open to the public for the rest of the year to go challenge your go- your golf game on the on the golf course that held the US or Women's Open or whatever. And I think that's going to happen with the PGA of America. They're building their golf course in Plano, Texas, right? They got 36 holes there. I would imagine they're going to have the PGA Championship there. Certainly the Dallas tournament will be there. So I think we're going to see eventually that happening. I mean, l- let's remember this this desire to protect all of these old golf courses, I think is a straw man argument. The first, what, 20 or 30 back then British Opens were held at Old Presswick. I, I don't see anybody bemoaning the fact that Presswick hasn't had a, an Open championship since 19-whatever. Evolution is a real thing, and, and you have to evolve. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's maybe not so good. But I would love to see a public-private venture between the PGA Tour and some real estate developers or whomever, some some municipalities, build a facility for the next 50 years in a certain town or state or whatever. You know, I mean, it's like Bandon Dunes and Cabot Links and Cabot Cliffs and all these golf courses have proven if, if you build it, they will come if it's good enough. And, and so you don't have to have it necessarily in a metropolitan area on a golf course that's become bastardized in order to rein in the, the current crop of players. One question, quick question, quick answer to this one. Do you feel like the gap between pro golf and amateur golf is getting bigger or smaller? Probably getting bigger, but it's always been huge. It has been huge. I, I just, I find that the answer, like what what you're talking about there with designing a golf course that, you know, other people are going to play most of the year yet is, is appropriate to test the pros. That's getting harder and harder as time goes along. The, the bigger that gap gets between the two levels. Right? I, I see. I disagree there. I, 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 the standard answer for most people is, well, you got to build a bigger golf course. That's a bigger footprint. That's, that's more climate change. That's more cost. That's more blah, blah, blah. The reality is that, some of the best golf courses on the PGA Tour, very few of them are played over 7,200 yards, if you look at them. And the good golf courses were designed properly, challenged the golfers in a myriad of ways, and they're entertaining. Let's build the 8,000-yard golf course community because the golf ball's going so far. They haven't had the right answer. I think that was lazy architecture to just make a big golf course because you got guys hitting it farther. I, I don't disagree with that. I think the exacerbation of the distance issue has been <laughs> build the tees back, for, throw the tees further back. Well, it's just going to make guys want to hit it even further and make the game honestly look like what it does what it does today. But I find that it, it's incredibly. It gets harder and harder and more and more complicated, and you have to dance closer and closer to the fairness line, which I do think exists in golf. Of you have to firm things up so much uh, if the ball is going to go this far for it's some of these design factors to really matter. Because otherwise, if, it's, if they're able to hit wedges in with it being anything less than very firm, the angles kind of stop mattering and guys are going to just – the challenge of so many golf shots is not really there when, one, guys can hit wedges 160 yards. Uh, so a 460-yard par four is not long anymore. 
And, you know, even if a really, really well designed, it, it's, it's unrealistic unless we're going to go and redesign and rebuild all these golf courses. It's unrealistic to expect, you know, a, a lot of repeat 420 yard par fours to be perfectly well designed and play the way they're intended to be designed condition wise. Uh, you know, when you have weather factors that, that are required there, you know what I mean? It's just so, it's so complicated when the ball is going to go this far. Yeah, but um, as well, and I go back, I think I mentioned this in an earlier podcast that Butler National, I thought, was a great golf course. Exceedingly difficult, but great golf course. And then they, they had a redo uh, in the 90s. And Tom Fazio went in, and I played and found myself in a, in a handful of fairway bunkers. And I was captured by the fact that every bunker I was in, if it was a uh, 175 yards from the green, and I needed uh, six iron to get there. I needed a seven iron to get over the lip. So it was it was a half a shot penal, and and if I was 100 yards from the green and needed a sand wedge to get on the green, I needed a lob wedge to get out of the bunker. And so that's the the graduated bunkers toward the greens that that penalized whatever club you were using from that distance. That's why I'm a huge proponent. I mean, someday John Deere is going to figure out a way to have a rough mower that starts at two inches at 250 yards. And as you drive it closer to the green, it'll get up to eight inches, 50 yards from the green. This is where it gets circular, though, because then we have tour rules on how high the rough can be because we don't want the players to get injured because they're the product and they're the ones that you know are basically setting the rules, right? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the tour has to realize that eventually I think people are going to get sick and tired of of guys hitting at 350 and, and having carte blanche to knock it on the green from wherever the hell they are. Would you agree with this? Okay, stripping out all the complications that come with this. If we're talking just from a simple fact of this, that the would you agree with this statement? The ball doesn't need to go as far as it currently does. That can be driver head, that can be ball, whatever it is. The combination of whatever the factor. But guys don't need to be hitting it the distance they're currently hitting it for golf to be entertaining or whatever people think golf should be. The ball doesn't need to go this far. Is that accurate in your mind? Yeah, again, you're looking for a silver bullet solution to the to the no, crime I, I problem. No, I want to. I want to. I want to unpack it from that answer. Right. It, it, not even thinking about solutions. Right. Just just from that answer, should the ball is it a good thing for the ball to go this far? I can't answer that. I can't answer that question. Yes or no. It's just, it's just too complicated. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a fair question. You know, it's, it's it's like a Senator with somebody in front of the committee and saying, yeah, I want a yes or no answer. And he asks, you know, (laughs) how how do you world end world hunger? It's, it's a lot more complicated. It, it is. I'll give you something to react to then there. I would say it is not a good thing for the ball to go this far for a, a myriad of reasons. I think, one, if we're starting out, and again, not looking to place blame, not looking to make any changes to it, Just let's just say talk about this issue. To, for starting out, the ball keeps going further by air, right? So that means you what once made sense for a tee box to be right near green, now that tee box has to go backwards. So now we're walking backwards only to cover that space with the ball in the air, right? Second thing, 
we can all agree that at some at some sense there there is a scale which makes the most sense. We can all disagree on what that scale is, but there is a scale where golf makes the most sense, right? It doesn't make sense for the ball to go 500 yards and to play 800 yard par fours. I think we can all agree. And it probably doesn't make that much sense for the ball to go 50 yards and to play 80 yard par fours, right? So there is a a appropriate distance that the ball with the size of the hole and the size of the ball for this to all make sense. We don't play putt-putt courses and we don't play a thousand yard holes. So why why do we want to this and maybe it's not going to keep trending this way but for so long the game has kept trending to let's let it go further and further and further and cover that distance by air now to the point where honestly sometimes like I have trouble seeing where when I go to tournaments seeing where balls land uh I think it is your perspective on on what uh makes y'all your eyes aren't even telling you that story anymore because the ball goes so far and with Ignoring all other of the million complications with that, I think working from that can help lead to a solution of just just asking that simple question, like why or who is benefiting from it going this far? Because it's not golf courses, it's probably professional golfers, and it's probably equipment makers. And is that the best thing for the game long term? Well, you see, you you keep saying the game as if the PGA Tour professional game is the game. I've said it over and over yeah. and over again. The game is not people who are paid to play golf. The game is the people who pay to play golf. And 95% of all golfers, that includes you, that includes me, that includes Mary, the, the 25 handicapper, and Joe, the 15 handicapper, are playing tees that are too far back for how far they hit the ball to make golf enjoyable. Yep. There's no two ways around it. So you can't give me the argument that the footprint of the golf course needs to get bigger and it's going to cost more money. Hell, people are playing from too far back as it stands right now on the golf courses we have. And we only play professional golf on whatever, 40 golf courses a year, something like that. But would you agree that, sorry, would you agree though that, you know, if you have equipment, let's just say equipment A is 1990 equipment and equipment B is 2021 equipment, that I would play, if I'm Joe Schmo off the street, I would play a different set of tees with equipment A than I would equipment B. So like the equipment change is is offset, right? It, it, I'm not really actually gaining anything because I just moved back a tee, right? You see what I'm getting at? I don't see players at any club that I'm a member or play at, visit, whatever, that are looking for another set of tees to go back to. They're, they're already too far back. I mean, where do you draw the line? I mean, do you go back to steel shafts and do you, do you put a limit on, I, I tell you what I, what I do understand now in, in retrospect is that the powers to be the RNA, the USGA, they never envisioned six foot five, 220 pound athletic studs swinging a golf club in 2022. Yeah. Uh, when, when they set their standards and, and I'm, I'm sorry, but you got guys six five, six six, six seven, uh, able to generate a tremendous amount of force, uh, whether it's with a deadlift or a golf club, and and they're going to hit the ball farther. There's no two ways around it. So do you roll it back for everybody to, or you just say, look, you can't be more than six foot four to play golf. <laughs> you know, do, do you yeah. do you do you put a height and strength uh, restriction on on guys? It, it's a, it's a very complicated 
uh, issue that doesn't have a simple solution. I can definitely, definitely uh, agree with that. Going back here, and we've talked about the evolution of a lot of events. I want to know uh, the evolution of the Ryder Cup. We touched on this a lot. We did a, a deep dive podcast on the 1991 Ryder Cup, which I would point to that being one of the key uh, events that changed it. I know uh, 87, I think, changed some things. There's, it's hard to point at one event that changed things, but what can you tell us about the evolution of the Ryder Cup and what you remember about it from maybe the 80s and 90s? Well, I mean, again, I'll go back earlier than that, and I, and I go back to the 1.62 golf ball versus the 1.68 golf ball. When the 1.62 golf ball was eliminated, that's when Europeans in particular started to get better at golf. Hmm. It, it, it took a while, right? Well, especially the guys that grew up playing only the one golf ball, right? That probably had to have an effect. Correct. And, and, and that, that gave birth to the Faldos and the Langers and the Sevies. They started to be able to compete on a level playing field, right? They, a few of them started to come over, and when they saw – Sevy having success in America, they realized, hey, you know what? I can compete over there too. Eventually, it was Tony Jacklin who became the captain and, and convinced the Europeans. He, he did everything in a first-class way, right? He, he did everything for the European team that everything the Americans were doing for their team. Cashmere sweaters and, and first-class travel and, and everything. And they started to believe and they started to become a team. They had the original pod system. Sorry, Paul Azinger, but you didn't have the original pod system. The Europeans had it. The Spaniards playing together with other Spaniards. The English playing with other English. Their, their pods were countrywide, you know, not personality-wide. They started to believe, and then once that belief took over, and they won in 87 uh, at Muirfield, the first time they won on foreign soil, it, it was all hands on deck. They, they now knew that they were equal, and, and belief – that you can accomplish something is probably the most important thing to have without that belief. It's hard to do. You know, I mean, Roger Bannister, no one believed you could, you could run a sub four minute mile until Roger Bannister did it. And then everybody believed you could run a sub four minute mile. Now look where they are now. And it's the same with the European golfers. They didn't never believe that they could compete here and there, maybe win a match here and there. But then all of a sudden, when they won on American soil, that was to me the turning point. And they started to believe, you know what, we got this now. Did the PGA of America have any idea what they had on their hands with the Ryder Cup? You, you know, how big it could be or, you know, was it always treated with the, with the grandeur that it is currently treated with? No, no, never, ever, never. <laughs> I mean, I, as I said before, 1989 was the first time the PGA of America charged a rights fee to a television network to put on the Ryder Cup. That was USA Network, and that was $225,000, if I remember correctly, for the <laughs> rights fee. Up until then, it was a time buy on ABC television. Jeez. So in other words, the PGA of America paid for ABC to come out, do it, edit it, and they put it on the air in a time buy. So that wasn't that long ago. You're talking about the 90s, right? So yeah. when, you look at, when you look at the evolution of, of the Ryder Cup, that was the 90s was the uh, the decade where it really exploded. I, I remember people were laughing at NBC because USA paid 225000 for the 89 Ryder Cup. And then I believe, I may not have my numbers correct, but I believe 
NBC paid $10 million to the PGA of America for the next five Ryder Cups. Oh, wow. That's probably a good deal by the end of that deal. Oh, no question. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely no question. But everybody was laughing at NBC. It's not, it's not worth it. Look what it is today. What are, what are some tournaments from the 90s, PGA Tour events, that no longer exist? It could be either for golf course purposes or just overall tournament vibe purposes that, uh, that no longer exist that you, you hold fondly in your, in your heart or in memory for any reason. Well, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the PGA Tour, the West Coast Swing was nothing, absolutely nothing. For all intents and purposes, the PGA Tour started at Doral in Miami. And uh, I remember a, a couple of years where, you know, the number one qualifier at Q School was, was guaranteed to get into every tournament. And they had to add him to the field a couple of years at Doral because everybody was starting their year up at Doral. Nobody went to Pebble. Nobody went to Torrey Pines. A few people went to L.A. The Australians and the Europeans, they came and they started their year at Doral. So that's, that's the most uh, memorable for me in terms of how the tour has changed, where the West Coast now is a lot stronger. You could argue that the, the Florida swing isn't quite as strong as it used to be back then. Yeah, it's, it's funny looking at the 1990 PGA Tour season Wikipedia page. First of all, it's very fun to go and click on these events because you, know, you click on the name, you're like, what is that event? And then the new name of it pops up, which I know you're a big fan of how the tour retroactively calls events the uh, you know, the Charles Schwab Challenge when uh, dating back to the 1940s and 50s and stuff like that. But Doral, the, the highest purse in 1990 of any event prior to Doral was $1 million. And then you get the Doral, and that purse was $1.4 million March 4th uh, there at Doral uh, in 1990. Yeah, and now that's, that's absolutely rock bottom minimum for a winner. Yeah. Yeah. Seven million purses, I think, get give one point zero eight. But like, yeah, any any big event of any kind gets at least one point four million to a winner. That was more than shoot. That was more than the Masters that year. The Masters was only one point two five that uh, million that year. British Open wasn't even a million dollar purse in, in 1990. And uh, Morikawa won over two million dollars for winning it. But um, it, it's it's wild. Yeah. The Western Open uh, obviously becomes the BMW. But then I click on the, the Shearson Lehman Hutton Open. Do you know what that one becomes? That's Torrey Pines, isn't it? Yep. That's the, that becomes the Farmers by way of the Buick Invitational. The Anheuser-Busch Classic becomes the Michelob at Kings Mill, and then that one goes away. The Bank of Boston Classic becomes the New England Classic, and then that one goes away. The Buick Open in Michigan spanned from 81 to 2009 without a name change the entire time. That seems like a, a an event that you know was had to be tough when that one went away. That had to be kind of jarring, was it not? Oh yeah, that I mean, there's there, there's lots of them. Uh, you know, not going to Flint, Michigan. I, you know, you can make, say what you want. There's a lot of jokes about Flint, Michigan, but we enjoyed that tournament a lot. Uh, you had the the uh, what was it Bell South in Atlanta? Is that mm -hmm. right? Yep. That's that that's in... that's gone away. I, I suppose the the golf in Chicago. Uh, I remember the old Centel Open at Butler National, and then that morphed into the uh, uh, the public golf course in Chicago. But having an annual stop in Chicago was was big. Yeah, it's changed a lot, and it's changed largely because of uh, of money. And you know, you can go back. You're gonna go back, and I also remember the International in Oh in yeah, Castle Pines, where that went away, 
because Tiger wouldn't play in it. And, and Tiger was the end-all, be-all. And when the rights fees went up and, and the tournament became more and more expensive to put on, with no Tiger playing in it, it, it became a, a liability for the folks at Castle Pines. So they just said, see ya. Jeez. Yeah, I didn't think about the effect Tiger would have had on tournaments that he wouldn't play and how those just automatically got got separated out into probably a totally different category, huh? Oh, no question. Yeah. And, and, and so people were being forced to play, forced to pay, quote-unquote, Tiger fees for a tournament where Tiger would never appear. And it, it became problematic for them to make ends meet. So that there's the there's the beginnings of the turnover in the tournaments that we had in the early 90s to what we have now. This is an incredibly difficult and unanswerable question, but what would you say the Tiger impact would be on one certain event in terms of television ratings and in-person attendance and everything that made it worthwhile for a sponsor if you were able to put a dollar on dollar amount on what it meant to, to have Tiger at your event that you sponsored versus not have him? What, what would your estimate be? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> well, that's two questions, actually. I mean, t- having Tiger there would virtually assure you of a sellout of tickets, sellout of sponsorships, um, and, and you wouldn't have to worry about, uh, uh, you know, going out and beating the bushes to get your income. I mean, when he, when he had the issues at, at in Scottsdale uh, in, in Phoenix and didn't come back, the Thunderbirds had to really work hard to, to get the people to come back out and endorse the tournament knowing full well that Tiger wasn't going to play there again. Hmm. But when he played there, it was out of this world. You can make a case that Tiger winning the Masters in 97 and going all the way up until 2019, he elevated the status of the Masters. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought of it that way. You know, a black man winning that tournament, becoming arguably the most visible golfer or athlete in the world, let alone golfer, um, I, I think he he brought the Masters uh, out of the dark ages into the current times, and, uh, and they took the mantle and ran with it. Yeah. Gosh, this, again, we could probably do a whole deep dive on just Tiger's impact. And I know we, we've, we've touched on it here and there within this episode, but it, uh, it, it really will, if golf will never, ever, ever be the same. Thanks to, in, in no small part to, to that guy and what he brought to it. So like you said, some for better, some for worse. I mean, definitely for the better of, uh, all professional golfers out there, I'd say his tree create he created more professional golf careers than anyone ever, right? I mean, it just became much more economical to be a pro golfer, not even at the PGA Tour level. Well, I mean, it even it even goes past that. I mean, obviously, every guy that plays professional golf today ought to be thankful to Tiger for for the amount of money they're playing for. That goes that goes without saying. But and there are a lot of other things involved. But there are a lot of teachers couldn't really make a living, and then all of a sudden when tour players started to uh, have teams of trainers, physical trainers, swing trainers, and so on and so forth, they, they, they created a, uh, an industry in teaching. They created an industry in, in fitness. Uh, Tiger's reach has been very wide and very broad uh, across the spectrum of the game of golf. There's absolutely zero chance you and I would be having this conversation right here, right now, if it was not for Tiger Woods. <laughs> no, none. <laughs> it, uh, I would not have a career at golf, I could effectively say, and uh, who knows if... See, there are some things, that, like I said, there are some things about Tiger that are good, and there are some things that are bad. <laughs> 
That I is well resist. played. That is well played, my friend. We're going to get you out of there on that one. We're going to end you on a high note like George Costanza. But uh, thanks again so much for uh, for spending some time with us, chatting with us. And uh, it wouldn't be a, a podcast with you if I didn't just spill some water, like much like I did in the very first one we did. <laughs> so thanks again for joining me. Right. We'll hope to have you back sometime. Cheers. Thank you, sir. Take care. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.